You may be seated. Good morning. I'm John Ziegler, and I am the pastor here. I don't know about you guys, but when we're reading that Psalm 50, and it starts talking about the storm raging all around us, it's really hitting home, because last night, it was coming down at my house. I don't know about you guys. I'm pretty sure lightning might have hit like the tree in my neighbor's yard or something. So uh, I might have almost got scared, but I was the adult in the room, right? I was the only one home with the kids, so I had to, I was brave, but we might have lost internet, and that's scary. You guys know. You lose internet, you got kids. It's scary. Might have to read a book or something. Okay, hey, good morning, everyone. So good to see you in church this morning. Uh, We have been talking about the prophets. Uh, Today we're in Isaiah, talking about justice. Um, I can remember the first conversation that I had with a Trinity family, Trinity Northside family, as when uh, Jan and I had come up here to kind of check out the church, see what was going in. We were incognito, but we were hanging out with our friends Rudolph and Bailey. And I was so thrilled and excited to hear their heart because they had a heart for their neighborhood and their neighbors, and they were excited about tr- what Trinity was doing and the partnerships we had with groups like Los Vecinos, the Buford Highway, and with Presencia, and these different groups that our church supports um, that partners with here to uh, do justice in our city, and they had volunteered with them and, and been a part of what they were doing. And I was excited to receive their excitement to hear about what was going on And since those initial conversations, I've had many conversations with several of you and learned and was glad to hear that many of you share a similar heart and a similar engagement in in a variety of ways here uh, through this church and in this city. As I've gotten to know uh, our mother church and Trinity more, I've been uh, just happy to hear stories about how uh, folks from our mother church founded Lazarus, which is... Uh, a, a program that reaches out to folks that are experiencing homelessness and just to learn that our, our church has a long history of caring for the poor and a desire to reach those on the margins. I've also encountered what I would call a posture of humility. Leaders who are able to celebrate what the church is doing while at the same time recognizing that we don't have it all figured out And also acknowledging that there's got to be more that we can do. And that by God's grace, we can learn and we can grow. I love that song that Nick led us in earlier. It says, God, teach us your ways. And then it says, let us learn from one another. It's the imagination that God might want to teach us his ways by being in community with others that we need to learn from. What a powerful sermon that we sung this morning. As you heard the text read from the prophet Isaiah this morning, as it focused on God's desire for justice, you might have asked yourself, do we really need another sermon on justice in this church? I kind of asked myself that question as I read the text as well. In fact, it sounded like the same exact sermon that I preached just a few weeks ago from Amos, because Amos's message is like really similar to what we read in Isaiah. So why another sermon on justice? Well, the reason is simply this, that we follow the lectionary. The lectionary is a series of readings that attempts to kind of cover most of the Bible as much as it can on Sundays in three years. And since the Bible is always talking 
about justice, it turns out that I find myself having the often prepared sermons on justice. Because whether we're in the Gospels or in the Pentateuch or in the Prophets, almost every book of the Bible wants to talk about this subject, wants to talk about God's good and beautiful and loving ways and how those ways are always ready to uh, adjust the way we live. And they're always speaking and they're always trying to reorder the way that power is ordered on this earth. By the way, I want to let you guys know that Isaiah is kind of like a really big deal. And the reason is, for us as Christians, is because Isaiah really shapes the imagination of the New Testament conversation. So much that we read in Jesus, in the Gospels, and also in the Epistles is shaped by this book, Isaiah. So this is my little, my little uh, $90,000 uh, seminary tip. Save you some money this morning. Read lots of Isaiah. Read lots of Exodus, okay? And if you'll understand those, you'll be able to read the New Testament uh, so much better. I'm happy that we get to be in this book this morning. Of course, you've already heard the words read by Steve. Isaiah comes out swinging. He doesn't mince words. He gets right into it. And here's the main idea. God rejects your worship because of your injustice. He says, hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Listen to the instruction of our God, O people of Gomorrah. Of course, he's calling them names. These are names of people that have, that have been so corrupt and so evil and so unjust that God has completely rejected them from the face of the earth. And of course, he's speaking to God's people and he's saying, hey, that's kind of what you are. What did he say? The multitude of your sacrifices, what are they to me? Says the Lord. I have had enough of your burnt offerings and the rams and the fatted calf and the music you're playing and the Eucharist you're offering and the songs that you're singing. When you come and appear before me, Who asked this of you, this trampling of my courts? Stop bringing me these meaningless offerings. Your incense is detestable to me, your new moons, your Sabbath, your convocations. I can't bear your worthless assemblies. God says, I hate your new, this is like hardcore. I hate your new moon feast and your appointed festivals. I hate them with all of my being, with all my soul. I hate it is what you're doing. And they become a burden to me. And I'm actually tired of them. I'm weary of bearing them. And when you spread out your hands in prayer, when you sing your songs from Bethel and Hillsong and whatever else it is you're doing, I hide my eyes from you. And when you offer prayers, I'm not listening. Why? Because your hands are full of blood. Can you imagine? Can you imagine God sending a prophet here to say, hey, Nick, I don't want to hear another song. John, I don't want you to consecrate another Eucharist. Trinity, I'm done with your hymns. I'm done with your prayers of the people. I'm done with you. By the way, it isn't that God isn't into like feast days and sacrifice and all this stuff. This whole list that we just read is everything that God told the people to do. Like in the book of Numbers, it says this, at the beginning of each month, that is at the new moon, 
you shall present to me a burnt offering, right? God tells this to his people. And yet here, your new moon feast and your appointed festivals, I hate with all my being. Well, why the mix up? It turns out that God didn't suddenly change his mind about sacrifice and feast days. He just never intended these feast days to be celebrated by people who trample on the poor. He never intended, he was never interested in sacrifices that are offered by bloody hands. What is it? What is it that God wants from his people? God wants genuine worship from generous hearts and just hands. God wants genuine worship from generous hearts and just hands. Now, we Anglicans love genuine worship, right? Some of us pride ourselves on the fact that we celebrate the liturgy right, right? We do it right. And God wants to say to us, okay, your liturgy looks good, but the worship that I want is from people with generous hearts and just hands. What does God want from his people? Well, there's six verbs in this text. They're action words that I want us to read and to consider. This is what God says in verse 16. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Don't think you already know it. You got to learn it. Like you need to learn to do good. Seek justice. It's something you've got to work for. It's something you've got to go looking for. You have to seek it out. And then I want you to notice the action that is required in these next three verbs. Four is rescue the oppressed. Not just stop oppressing them, but I want you to rescue them. And then I want you to defend the, the orphan not just to do no harm and to plead for the widow. Again, they're asking, these are all words that they want you to take action. Let me just name something real quick about why we're naming here the orphan and the widow. There's all kinds of reasons uh, that we could go into, but basically these are people, obviously if you're an orphan, you don't have parents to take care of you. And uh, if you are a widow, likewise, you don't have a husband to support you. Um, but it, it goes deeper than that. Without a husband or without a father, uh, these would have been, uh, like let's just say there's a legal action that's happening, right? There's no lawyers. So there's these wise elders that sit at the city gate that are trusted, and then folks will come and plead their cases before them if there's some kind of injustice, right? If you need justice for something, you go speak to these judges that are at the gate. Well, who are the people, if we don't have lawyers, that speak? Well, it would be kind of the head of the family. It would be the, the male. It would be the father. Or it would be your husband. And so it turns out that widows and orphans are particularly at a disadvantage, not, not just socioeconomically. Obviously, you're going to be more poor, especially in this culture, uh, without a dad or without a husband. But you're also at a disadvantage that someone could easily oppress you. Someone could easily take advantage of you because you didn't have someone to take up your case. And that's why God has to tell his people what he wants is that they defend the orphan and that they plead the case of the widow. Notice the action that is required of God's people. 
Notice that this motto that some of us have kind of bought into, kind of live and let live or maybe do no harm, actually doesn't cut it. Some of us think that we're good because we don't hurt anyone. And we think, hey, I recycle, I buy fair trade coffee, I drive a Prius, and so I'm good. But it turns out that God is asking us to do something beyond the do no harm. Of course, it actually does begin with cease to do evil, but then it moves on to learn, seek, rescue, defend, and plead. God wants genuine worship from generous hearts and just hands. We might say from hands that are tired from doing the work of justice. So what happens if God's people engage in this work of justice? What will then happen? Well, God promises forgiveness, right? Come, let us argue it out, says the Lord. Though your sins are as scarlet, they will be white as snow. Though they are red as crimson, they shall be like wool. Some of us grew up singing this song, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left the crimson stain, he washed it white as snow. Some of us might not have realized the context from which these lines were borrowed. It's the context of seek justice, rescue the oppressed, defend the orphan, plea for the widow. And God says, then you will be forgiven. Well, we might say, wait, this doesn't sound like the gospel that I know. Isn't it true that we can't save ourselves? Isn't it true that we we don't have to clean up ourselves to come to Jesus? Didn't we sing at that Billy Graham crusade, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for me and that thou biddest me Come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. I come. Well, yes, it is true. But what we have to know is that this message in Isaiah is for a people that have already received God's salvation. You see, the gospel in the Old Testament was that Israel was enslaved in Egypt, and they had no power to save themselves, but God saved them. He saved them out of slavery and freed them, and he gave them a new life. And it turns out that mercy and justice is what God's people were supposed to live in response to God's grace. Friends, the message for us isn't become a just person and God will love and forgive you. No, it is this. God loved you and he forgave you. And so he wants you to demonstrate his love to others in acts of justice. We can't think that we can belong to Christ without seeking justice. Love of neighbor is not optional for those who would follow after Christ. God wants genuine worship from generous hearts and and just hands. And that's why in today's gospel, We hear Jesus saying, don't be afraid, little flock, for it is the Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. 
And because you have that safety, you can sell your possessions and give alms to the poor. And you can make purses for yourselves that don't wear out. An unfailing treasure in heaven where no thief comes near and no moth destroys for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Don't be afraid. Don't be anxious. It's the kind of anxiety that we have about uncertainty. And it's this anxiety that drives us to accumulate possessions at the expense of our neighbors. Have any of you guys ever exchanged money because you were going to a foreign country and you wanted to like buy things there and use money that they would actually accept, right? So I'm not really good at cleaning out my wallet. I think I still probably have a few euros in my wallet, although I haven't been there in like 10 years. Maybe there's a few pesos in there as well from trips to Mexico. How do you obtain currency in God's kingdom? How do you transfer your assets from this kingdom into the kingdom of God? Well, here's the gospel imagination for you from Jesus this morning. Giving to the poor is your kingdom 401k. Sell your possessions, give to the poor, and then you'll have riches in the kingdom. It turns out, friends, that the treasures in heaven are impervious to inflation. That's kind of good news for us right now, right? Like you see that inflation just eating at your savings. We could transfer them where, as he says, there's no thief, the moth doesn't come, and there's no inflation. I want to talk to you kind of as a closing thought or focus in this sermon about the connection between generosity and justice and something we can call proximity. The Farmer Street I used to live on in Los Angeles, I have a friend that lives there named Nate. And Nate is a musician and a well-known band that probably everyone here would know. And Nate lives with his family in a house that's valued at least a million dollars. Across the street from Nate is my friend Leo. Leo lives in a very small apartment with his family, and he works as a groundskeeper at Griffith Park. If Nate were to respond to this call from Jesus and to sell his possessions and to then begin to share them with the poor, Nate would not have to go find some organization looking for the poor. He would not have to go search them out all Nate would have to do is walk right across the street, right? To share what he had with his neighbor. And we could describe this as proximity. The Bible imagines a similar proximity because the people that the Bible is written for are living either in villages or when they talk about the cities, these cities are like super small. We would think of them as towns. And so people live their lives, even though the wealthiest people in their society live their life in close proximity to the poor, and they know the names of the orphans and the widows and the immigrants that are living among them and those that are marginalized in their society. It's not this anonymous situation. And that is what brings us to the point and the challenge. Friends, our call to do justice 
is frustrated by our lack of proximity to those who need justice. Many of you are probably familiar with Brian Stevenson. He is a public interest lawyer who has dedicated his career to helping the poor, the incarcerated, the condemned. And he founded and directs the Equal Justice Initiative. It's a human rights organization not too far from here in Montgomery, Alabama. His organization has won major legal challenges, eliminating excessive and unfair sentencing, exonerating innocent death row prisoners, confronting abuse of the incarcerated and the mentally ill, and aiding children who are prosecuted as adults. Many of us will know him either from his book, Just Mercy, or the film by the same name. And as he was giving a talk to Redeemer Presbyterian Church in Manhattan, Brian Stevenson asked the question, what does it require to do justice? To love mercy and to walk humbly with our God. What do we need to do to change the world? Of course, there's so much that needs to be changed in our world. And of course, Stevenson is focused on our broken justice system and mass incarceration. It turns out the United States incarcerates more people than any country in the world. We have 2.3 million people in prison, 6 million people on probation. 30% of the black male population has lost the right to vote. One in three black boys will be sentenced to prison. And so he asked the same question, and it's a similar question that I have been asking for our church, and I'm sure you're asking as well. What does it require for us to do justice, love mercy, and walk humbly with our God? And for him, part of his answer is this. He says, you have to get proximate. You have to get proximate to the people in the places where there is poverty and suffering and neglect. You have to get closer to where people are struggling. There is power in proximity. To change the world, we are going to have to find ways to get closer to people who are living on the margins of society. It's actually in proximity to the poor that we hear things that we otherwise don't hear, that we'll see things that we otherwise don't see. And the things we hear and see are critical to our knowledge and our capacity to solve the problem. And then he shares about how he got into this line of work. He was a law student and he had volunteered and they sent him down to Georgia. And he came to Georgia and he went to go see someone on death row for the very first time. And he begins to have a conversation with this man and realize that this man has the very same birthday, born on the same day in the same year. And they start sharing stories. And suddenly they've gone an hour and they've gone two hours over time. And the guards are angry and they're upset and they're frustrated and they're going to take it out on the prisoner. And so they take him out and they, they, they start to mistreat him and they cuff him and they shackle him and they're pushing him and, and, and painfully as he goes down the hall. 
And that inmate flung his head back and said, don't worry about them, you just come back. And then he began to sing the hymn, Higher Ground. You see, Brian Stevenson got close. And it was that proximity that changed everything. Hearts are changed in proximity. But it's hard to love who you don't know. Stevenson says, get close to the problems instead of trying to solve them from a distance. Get proximate to the poor and be willing to do uncomfortable things. Proximity. Pretty soon, we are going to undergo a name change. We will become Church of the Incarnation. Incarnation describes the movement of the Trinity towards us. It's what happens when God becomes near, when God becomes like us, when God becomes poor, and when he heals and includes those on the margins. Incarnation is about proximity. Friends, becoming incarnation people, it means that we have to recognize that God wants genuine worship from generous hearts and just hands. It means that we're going to have to find ways to increase our proximity to those on the margins and suffering. It's true, a new location in Chambly where it's located, we're thankful that it will help us with this challenge of proximity. But a location isn't enough, friends. It's going to be more important the location of our bodies and the bodies with whom our bodies are proximate to. And so I want to call each one of us to Holy Spirit discernment. Discernment about closing the proximity gap. Loving God, grant us generous hearts and just hands that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name. Amen. I want to invite you to a moment of silence now as we reflect on what the Spirit would be saying to us.